Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval 1000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan. I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Maryland, the most medieval state in America, where the sun is finally shining for the first time in two weeks. It's very exciting. Oh, that's, so, that's adorable. That's adorable. We had a giant snowstorm and the sun was still shining, but hey. New Mexico. Uh, today, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, which is going to be showing up in a while, we will be talking about St. Patrick, various crimes connected therewith. But first, uh, one of our listeners had a had something that he was telling Michelle about the Book of Kells. We were talking about the Book of Kells and how it was found under a sod, and we found this like you know what the hell, oh, what. Michelle, please report on users' experience. Right. So my brother-in-law pointed out that if you cut grass and then you put something under it, that the grass on top is going to die. And eventually, even if you put it back down on top of the book, and somebody will eventually come and and check on that, which seems like a perfectly valid observation to make, and possibly is a reminder that I don't go outdoors as much as I should. <laughs> yes, and we are told it was under a sod, meaning not just in the dirt, but under a sod. So that the sod had turned yellow totally makes sense to us. And we thank you, Michelle's brother-in-law, for contributing that. Thank you. Yay, the user. Yay, the listeners. Uh, so St. Patrick. St. Patrick was born in Britain. He was born in Britain. We're going to get to that later. Sometime in the 5th century. We don't know when. But, you know, sometime in the 5th century, uh, someplace where we don't know when we don't know. He calls himself Patricius, and he never uses any other name. So Patrick is fine to call him. Uh, we have two surviving works of his, both in Latin. There's a confession of his life, and there's a letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. So any details we have of his life really are from that. There's some stuff that comes uh, from the Irish annals, but they're written about 100 years later, so whatever. Now, he was born someplace in Roman Britain. The place candidates are Ravenglass in Cumbria, Burdekwald, which is over near Carlisle, maybe Northampton, Scotland, Wales. He tells us specifically where he's from, but, you know, it means nothing because we don't know where that was. He tells us that his father was Calpurnius, who was a deacon, who was son of Potitus, a priest, and that they were at this unknown place called Bonavern Taburnii, wherever that was. At some point in the confession, he talks about Britain as near to my native land, and also this is unclear. But even though his father and his grandfather were Christian, Patrick Sorda wasn't much. Until he got captured by Irish pirates when he was 16, along with, he tells us, thousands of others, uh, because... As he explains, God was annoyed with them because they were not being very good Christians. So he tells us also that he hesitated to write all this stuff down because unlike people who never had to change their ways of speaking since childhood, he had to translate it. Uh, his he had to translate his speech and words into a foreign language. And he calls himself a um, country person and unlearned. His father actually <laughs> he comes from an estate. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, country person, whatever, uh, and unlearned. I don't know. He see, he was he studied in uh, Europe. 
I got the impression that he was always a little self-conscious about the years that he missed while he was enslaved in Ireland, that those were some really important education years that he kind of felt like he never got back. I think that that's true. And that there's also, as we know, this uh, uh, there's this convention uh, in um, medieval autobiography where you explain that you don't know anything. Uh, so I think both those things are operating. Mm. But I have also seen scholars talk about his Latin as rustic. And so his Latin was not, you know, enormously wonderful, I suppose. Uh, in Ireland, uh, he was a shepherd, more on that later, and he prayed continually and he began to love God more and more. And there was a voice about six, year, six years on into being in Ireland as a slave. There was a voice that told him that he would be going home soon. And so he ran away and he got into a ship full of pagans. And when they got to land, they were starving. And he confidently told them that God was going to help, which God did in the form of a bunch of pigs. And so they all converted. Uh, and this kind of becomes a theme with him, really. Uh, but he got captured again, and then he was uh, freed by God after two months. And in a few years, he was back in Britain with his parents. But he had a vision of a man named Victorious bringing a bunch of letters from Irish people, who I suppose all could write, uh, begging him to come back. So eventually he did. And then he, and he wanted to go home, but he never did because he was supposed to stay. And at any rate... Yeah, so that's his story. He went to Ireland. He converted people. He wasn't that uneducated because we know that he studied in Europe. And we also know that he was ordained by um, St. Germanus of Auxerre. But the return to Ireland, this going back to Ireland, might have to do with some charges which were brought against him for something he did when he was, before he'd been captured into slavery the first time when he was about 15. And we have no idea what it was. We have no idea what it was. Some people think it was financial. But this dangerous trek around Ireland converting people was, as far as he was concerned, a penance for something that he'd done in his youth at about 15 years old. So the crime of St. Patrick. We have no idea what it was, but he was really, really sorry. And uh, his, the legends start up about him about 200 years later. Now, so I have some things to say about all this. First of all, he wasn't actually <laughs> the first person to bring Christianity into um, Ireland. No, there was a bishop, Palladius, who was sent there. Yeah, there was a bishop who was sent there by the Pope in at the beginning of the fifth century so a few decades before saint patrick got there but we don't know his name and we know saint patrick's name mm -hmm. saint patrick wrote stuff and see this is why you know the writing things down it's like so important so he wasn't really the first but he is the famous 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 one and he wrote stuff and legends started springing up about him uh, about 200 years after he died, the legends started. And we're not going to go into the legends because you know the legends. There were snakes involved. Um, there was a bunch of things with druids, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, Irish piracy, 5th century. That's what I want to talk about. There were regular slave raids on Britain. Uh, so, and St. Patrick happened to be one of the captives. And so that's, that's really a big deal. But those slave raids had started, they were like a couple centuries after Roman Britain was getting destabilized in the 5th century. Dublin was going to become a major slave trading center under the Vikings in the 9th century. But when the Vikings 
put in that slave trade. Slavery was already well established in Ireland. The laws in Ireland uh, held the slave class as the lowest of the non-free classes, uh, meaning you weren't in a kinship group because that was how things were organized in Ireland. You belong to some kind of family. What's it? Uh, There was movability. You could work your way up. Uh, You could eventually get out. uh, And and actually, going and getting more members of this class was discouraged in in general by the laws, but not necessarily paid attention, attention to. But at any rate, the slave raids from Ireland on Britain were part of this Hiberno-Roman relations. It's it's just, this goes back and forth. The Romans, after invading Britain, had uh, made their trade routes with Ireland stronger. They'd already had them, but they made them even stronger. We've got um, Roman coins and jewelry that we found in Tara and Cashel and thusly. And there was also a slave trade that was going from Roman in Britain into Ireland. So from so I, the Irish people were getting taken on into Roman Britain, and this was because the economy of Roman Britain was agricultural, and so it was especially lovely to have slaves to do the hard labor. That's why that was going on. But Roman Britain fell apart, and the trajectory reversed, and so the Irish were taking slaves from Roman Britain. Uh, the Roman the Roman Empire had also brought Christianity to Ireland. That's decades before Patrick, as we said. Uh, and they'd also brought the Latin alphabet, which is the basis for the Alm alphabet, which was invented in Irish settlements in Wales. So there's all that. But Gaelic Ireland was also growing crops, but the mainstay of the economy was uh, cattle. Uh, And then after cattle, sheep, goats, pigs. And so that's why what St. Patrick was doing was being a shepherd. He was not working the crops. They weren't the big deal. So we have evidence of Irish raiding uh, from the Roman history and from the Roman military installations at Cardiff, Anglesey, uh, and the Cumbria coastal sites. And so uh, we we know that that there was this back and forth. And here's the deal. This is especially for Michelle, who in our last podcast, when we were explaining about um, the Swedish pirates from a few hundred years later, uh, was very interested in the boats. They had to have been using uh, oared ships with mast and sails. And that is an indication of continental maritime technology. And so that early, there was a movement of technological maritime ideals because mm. they weren't using it's like the irish raiders shows that showed up in their curse no yeah, they no. didn't you cannot put a whole a thousands of people into your little curse and get them across no no they had actual real ships uh we just don't hear them about as much i think they're not as romantic <laughs> but but there i do want a little moment of silence for whoever was brave in uh Bronze Age Ireland and put probably a little cow, you know, into into a cura and took it across so that they could start having cows in Ireland. That would have been a tricky endeavor. Well, thank you. That's the moment of silence for the cow toting across the Irish Sea. That was some serious bravery, even even with them only being a calf. 
tick two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no point really in putting a Kura picture on the <laughs> uh, on, on the website because Kuras were not involved in this particular story. But no. can you link to one in the show notes, Michelle, so that people can see why we know very well that St. Patrick was not captured by somebody steering a Kura? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that was not happening. But yeah, so St. Patrick, um, he really did exist. He wrote some stuff. That's how we know about him. And because he wrote some stuff and that we know about him, he became he became extremely famous and extremely beloved. We got lots of stories about him. And Michelle found films. I did. I I <laughs> This is interesting. Um, I didn't go digging around in all of the historical fiction. Um, there's there's a fair amount of historical fiction about St. Patrick. Now, this historical fiction, does it involve Kuros? Because I'm betting it does. A lot <laughs> Prob- <of> probably. <laughs> I am just- and they had mastered oared ships with which they got whole bunches of people and took them back to take care of the cattle. No, nobody says this. It's all Curls, the Irish. No, it was not. (sighs) More debunking going on. 1,000 years of people behaving badly and generating an enormous amount of trash. Okay. Okay. So historical fiction, there was a bunch. There's, There's quite a lot of it. And of course, it starts in the actual Middle Ages because you have all of these, you know, legends growing up. You've got the the Vita, which are theoretically not lying but hagiography ends up lying probably not on purpose i think hagiography always likes tells the truth metaphorically that's a nice way to think about it yes it's a very nice way of putting it so was saint george for instance saint george a lot of people don't know that saint george is a martyr but he was there was a dragon and then there was a martyr so first of all did saint george fight a dragon probably not um was he mar- he was one of those martyrs that got martyred like several times like you know they cut his head off and they boiled him on oil and they did they did they did all kinds of they cut all his entrails up they did all kinds of things to him and he kept michael saint, the mike saint michael kept bringing him back i myself personally would get annoyed by this but saint george no no he you know and so did he actually i'm willing to believe he was a was a christian convert and a martyr dragons no um getting killed several times and brought back by saint michael no metaphorically see metaphorically that's all true at a, at a spiritual level and so therefore snakes in Ireland, all the snakes that are like no no but metaphorically if you see what i mean uh, so I do have a I do have a recommendation for an intro biography Yay! about St. Patrick that is uh, academically informed but not impenetrable prose, which I do tend I do tend to try to find those. So this is by this is by Philip Freeman and it's called St. Patrick of Ireland: A Biography. Um, Does it have Kuros in it? This is my, this is going to be no, my line for no. how we know that something is actually paying attention to it, reality. It does not. <laughs> it's not real long. It's about 160 pages, and but so it's fairly con- concise introduction just, to because we don't really know anything. Well, and talking a little bit about you know what would have what would his life have been like as a you know they're not lords but. So what was his life like before he got captured? What would it have been like during his, you know, enslavement time? How do you, 
find your way back from the west of Ireland to get a boat to escape, make your escape. Because I'm pretty sure that in this time in Ireland, they they shaved the slaves' heads so that it was obvious who was an escaped slave. And yet, and yet, they they agreed to take him back. Yeah. So the coolest stuff I found, um, the particular rabbit hole I went down this time was film. Okay. So I found some okay-ish films. I found a couple of truly dreadful ones. Um, and I found some old ones. This was what was really, really striking to me is how early in the history of film St. Patrick ends up in it. Hmm. In There is a film from 1912 in the U.S. Whoa, that is quite early. Yeah. Uh, the Life of St. Patrick from the Cradle to the Grave. Um, if it still exists, I can't find it. I know it did exist. Uh, so we can't go to YouTube and watch it. Not as far as I can tell. Um, maybe somebody else can find it, but I, I did not find it. That one, I, I can't find a whole lot about, but it's not nearly as, in- that's fine. Cause it's not nearly as interesting as the 1920 silent film from Dublin. Ooh. I, Ooh, I read well, all about Dublin. this. This makes sense. Of course, the Dublin film people are going to be more interested in St. Patrick. I, the, oh. the, the 1912 is very interesting indeed. But still, were you able to find this and see this? I know it exists, but it is not on the internet as far as I can tell. It Darn. is in um, an archive in, I believe, in England. And they appear to hold the rights to it, which means it's not on the web as far as I can tell. But every piece of this is fascinating. The guy who made it, um, the filmmaker is named Norman Witten. He, he was born in 1881 in London. Okay, so this is the pers- first piece I'm fascinated with, that he's not Irish. Yeah, yeah, he, nothing about this, yeah. He was the first actor to play the Mad Hatter. No. I know. I love him. He he is now a, a hero of mine. I must have pictures. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And he married the young woman who played Alice in that production. Of course he did. Of course he did. That's also very nice to know and sort of weird, but okay. <laughs> so they moved to Dublin in 1913 and Why? set up a film company. I have no <laughs> idea. To set up a film company called General Film Supply, which you wouldn't think from the title was actually making movies. You'd think they were like selling film and cameras and stuff, but no, they made to to the vast film industry of 1913 Ireland, right? So they set up, they set up a company and they, his company made newsreels, advertising, things like that to be shown before the main feature. Okay. Okay. That's interesting because that's a nice little, that's a nice little niche. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. He, um, his company produced the first animated film in Ireland in 1917 called 10 days leave, which does not survive. But what we think is probably about uh, a soldier in the first world war on a 10 days leave. Cause that seems context clues suggest that that might be what's going on. Okay. Okay. So 
in when when the rising happened he filmed the release of Sinn Féin prisoners and then he made a film called Sinn Féin Review in 1919 and that was promptly seized by the police and during a showing and banned. Huh. Can we find it? Is it on YouTube? You know, I don't, I didn't look for that one. I didn't look for that one. Cause um, I want that. <laughs> I know. Probably it doesn't survive. Given, no, okay. given everything else that happened in the rising, it probably did not survive. The English probably took that out and burned it immediately. <laughs> the British were not, the British weren't having an enormous amount of charity toward this. Toward this guy this is fascinating because he's doing all these things, but he doesn't appear to be politically motivated. He just thinks there's an, he's not Irish. He doesn't have particular sympathies, but he appears to know his audience where he's living in Dublin. That is very interesting. That is very yeah. interesting indeed. He, um, when he filmed the release of the Sinn Féin prisoners in 1917, he had his um, footage in the movie theaters that night because he was able to develop the film there, whereas other companies had to send their film to London to be processed. So he was Johnny on the spot with that. And then he made what he what he claimed was just a newsworthy event, you know, a newsworthy coverage of things that were happening in the Sinn Féin review and it got, it got totally seized and probably destroyed by the English. So that's the background for this dude who in 1920 makes his debut feature film called in the days of St. Patrick that huh. um, starred his own son as young Patrick <laughs> There was also another, there was another actor who played Patrick as an adult, um, but the subtitles for it were in both Irish and English. Oh, so <laughs> it was, it was. And this, tell me again, this is 1920. 1920. Okay. Yeah. So part, yeah. So he does know his audience. This, this is yes. part of the revival. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Wow. Awesome. And. It's very much drawing on, you know, both what really happened in Patrick's life, but also the the legends. So there's a scene about him driving the snakes out of Ireland. Every, oh my God, everything about this is amazing. They had uh, basically an embedded journalist in the production because the journalist was an extra in the film and would write up chatty columns for his newspaper after every couple days of filming. <laughs> Do you know what the newspaper was? Oh, I can find out because I've got the article for in um, from the website Early Irish Cinema. What the heck is this guy's name? His abbreviation is JAP. Bioscope. The the newspaper is Bioscope. Yeah, I want to know where it's based. That's a good question that I did not think to answer to ask. I'm trying to also find out the name of the journalist because He's being abbreviated there as J-A-P. Who the heck is that? Oh, my God. Originally published by Archibald Hunter in 1908 and edited by actor John Caborn, the bioscope emerged at a time when cinemas were beginning to sprout up around London and an opportunity in the market presented itself. This is a London. This is a London? 
this is a London publication. Fascinating. That is indeed. So it's a column called Irish Notes that this journalist is writing for. Got it. And Got he it. is also an extra in the film. So he has all these chatty dispatches from the um, the film and the work they were actually doing. Uh, I don't think we know. I don't think we know his name. Oh, okay. So here. Um, so it's just J.A.P.? We all we know of him is that he's JAP. Okay, but it's just stunning, right? Because they have all of this publicity while they're filming, and really unusually for a film at this time, um, this film is shown in Dublin and then it's shown in England and then it comes to the United States. That's quite a trajectory, yeah. 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 So it tours the United States or just comes to like New York? Let's see if they're, let's see if they say in more detail than I'm remembering. I'm guessing New York and Boston. British dates begin to appear. Let's see. Then it comes, it comes to Washington. Whoa. Washington and Pillsboro. Yeah, I don't know, but it goes to Washington. Okay. At any rate, so this is <laughs> this this film does pretty well. Yeah, this appears to be the high point of his filmmaking career. To be honest, there's an interesting quote here from the from the article at in Irish Early Irish Cinema on EarlyIrishCinema.com. Quote: Witten was very clearly making a political film, but one very different from his band Sinn Fein Review. And then they give the name of the film in Irish. It looks like Amshir Padraig, which means I'm pronouncing it wrong. Because <laughs> nothing is pronounced the way it looks. <laughs> was So the film, this film about St. Patrick, was political in appealing to an Irish separatism based not on the politics of Sinn Féin and the IRA, but on Catholicism and Gaelic culture expressed in the speaking of Irish or aspiring to. And then the learning of Irish is depicted in the film in a scene that is Patrick's only really positive experience as a slave in Ireland when he's learning, when he's learning the language. I would really like to see this film. I want to there see are that stills film from it, but well, I, I want to see the Shin fame film. Also. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but yeah, I would like to see this. That is, that's, I, I, and I wonder like what, why? Why did he go to Ireland? Like, in no connection. His wife's got no connection. He, like, no. what the hell? Was he just seeing a market that, you know, wasn't saturated yet? So he had... Maybe. It is sort of interesting, though, that this Englishman, you know, comes to Ireland and gets gets involved with the very early days, makes this pro-Irish film, and then when his business fails, returns to England. Okay, so the business did fail. Yeah. The business fails. Okay, well, I'm sorry. And what did he do when he went back to England? Is he still an actor? Is he still doing film? What's he doing? He does other things. Um, he ends up serving as an ARP warden. ARP. Air, Air Raid Patrol. Ah, oh, that's in the Second World War. Yep. When he was still in Ireland in 1917, he set up Ireland's first regular newsreel service. So this guy was all over the place. I mean, he clearly was really good at starting things and not so great <laughs> at keeping them running. 
<laughs> but he, I mean, he seems to really have been um, inspired and, you know, knowing what would be a big thing, but really being bad at the follow through. I wonder if ADHD is involved, but we move on. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> as, someone, as someone who knows intimately what that is like, I wonder. But he lived to 1969. Can you, I mean, this just really? mind-blowing, right? Really? He, he's, he's born in 1881. He lives to 1969. He, he and, sees the Beatles. So he dies in London. Yep. And he is okay. he's buried there. Okay, well, he we like him. We find him interesting and just very, yeah, that's what we think. All right. True crime and evil in favor of, what's his name again? His name is Norman Witten. True crime and evil in favor of Norman Witten. Okay, so there was a St. Patrick film in 1920. That in 1920, and I just, I'm just so, I mean, I'm not surprised that right at the beginning of the Republic, St. Patrick is called on. I'm not surprised sure. by that, but the fact that it's happening in film so quickly did kind of surprise me. And the and uh, your the article you read said that it was clearly political. What what made that clear? Because of the um, subtitles being in both English and Irish, of course that that alone that alone is enough. Yeah. That yeah. situates you. That <laughs> that situates you in the culture and political spectrum in Ireland in nineteen twenty. Yeah. Yes, it when it's been when it's been illegal for so long, having 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 it there on the film is going to be a. He, he, there's no way that's not a political statement. Yeah, and since it's a silent film, you're not having to have people speak in Irish, but you can have you can have bilingual. Uh, captions fair enough i would yeah. love to know who was doing the captions and but at any rate that oh wait a second no no we do know that oh no you're kidding me the film's titles here i'm back to quote quoting from that extremely informative article on earlyirishcinema.com the film's titles were specially designed by william j walsh and an opening title listed the irish translator oh my god f I-A-C-H-R-A. That's his okay. first name. Wait, wait, wait. Her. Wait, wait, wait. F-I-A-C-H-R-A. Uh-huh. And then the last name is E-I-L-G-E-A-C-H. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right. I'm going to look this up and see if I can find where they are from. Because the reason I'm interested is that there's a lot of back and forth between native Irish speakers and uh, the people who are learning it. And that is an interesting issue. Yates was never able to learn it. He was sad about that. He just couldn't do it. Patrick Pierce did, of course. Uh, Brendan Behan is going to learn his in jail, actually from one of the um, freedom fighters. I looked at other, I looked at other films about St. Patrick, but this is the only one that, that I found that makes a big deal out of the Irish, out of the Gaelic, which is still then striking, right? Because I'm looking at other films from as recently as last year. Wow. Wow. Okay. Hold on. Whoops, 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 wrong. Hold on, hold on, because this is actually interesting. Got it. (laughs) 
All right, because we are totally going to put this in. I also just just ran across about three minutes ago on Norman Witten's page in early Irish cinema that he filmed a Corpus Christi procession in Galway, and I will be no. looking up that. Oh, no. Oh, oh. Okay. Yep. Uh, the person who did the Irish captions for the film. Yeah, originally okay. His name, okay, I'm telling you. Cool. Originally, his name is Richard Foley. Uh, Richard O'Foley. He is a member of the Gaelic League. That's what I was wondering. Oh. He was born in Cork. Uh, his parents uh, both spoke Irish. And uh, he was a teacher, journalist, writer. He wrote um, in Munster Gaelic, because that's what Cork is. He wrote poetry. And the Gaelic League had been declared illegal in 1919. Yeah, well, he was in it. Uh, and, um, yeah, he founded uh, uh, he founded a branch of Conrad Gaelic, the Gaelic League, along with Shostov O'Torna, Sean O'Kuv, and Sean O'Kelly. And he chose the motto for that branch. Muskul de Vesna Chavanba, Awaken Your Courage, Banba, and was its honorary secretary for nine years. And yeah, so he was, um, that's, uh, that's what I was wondering is where they, because if there were, the reason I was wondering is that they were making a work in Dublin in 1920. The odds were that they were working with someone from the Gaelic League and I was right. Yeah, Richard of Richard of Richard of Foley. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so that was fun. So that was the 1920 production. <laughs> A lot on the 1920 productions. Yeah, sorry. That was by far was by far the most interesting one I found. Well, I found it fascinating because you know Irish history and this time period. I'm I know pretty well. <laughs> so what else? What else you find? Because I'm going to want to hear about the bad ones, but first of all, were there were there other good ones? Uh, there's there's at this point what we what we have is a range from competent to awful. Okay, so Patrick had a moment. I actually was sort of surprised at the the paucity of films about Patrick that I was finding. So there's a there's a documentary from the year 2000 called St. Patrick Apostle of Ireland that is it's about what you would expect it's a little dull but what <laughs> it does what it does do well is a, uses a lot of quotations from Patrick's own, own words with voiceover of okay, some very nice. very pretty parts of of Ireland it opens with a St. Patrick's Day parade and has this contrast of voiceover from Patrick, you know, kind of doing that um, downgrading of himself thing. And while we're seeing images of this parade that is honoring, honoring him, which is nice. That was nice filmmaking. Um, the director is listed as David Tennant. And I don't think it could possibly be the one we're all thinking of. Oh, but I, we want it to be, don't we? No, because we do. it, David Tennant, it was totally not going to be boring. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, and it's not claimed. If if it if it's his, he's not claiming it on his IMD page. Yeah, no, 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 it's, no. It's no. totally competent. It's just dull. It's what you would ex what you would expect from you know the kind of documentary that everybody fell asleep in the seventh grade watching. <laughs> yes, that one got it. There's um, there's 
another documentary called In the Footsteps of St. Patrick from 2016 that is, in fact, on YouTube and can be watched if one has more patience than me, because I bailed after the first few minutes. Um, there is wait, a... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. St. Patrick, Apostle of Ireland by David Tennant. And here's a picture of David Tennant coming out of what looks like a Doctor Who um, police box, except that it's green with a shamrock. What? Yes, that <laughs> David Tennant. No way. I, yes. How do you find this stuff? I dug and dug. I spent an hour and a half yesterday trying to ascertain whether it was the David Tennant. I Googled David Tennant St. Patrick and there he is. Just telling you. Yep. Damn it. So here's what I want to know is how the hell David Tennant made a boring movie about St. Patrick. Especially if he's got the, you know, the, the Doctor Who uh, St. Patrick um, time machine. I'm just. It would have been really, really. He would have been really young because this is from the year 2000. Huh. <laughs> well, somebody scrubbed it from his IMDb page. It's 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 not bad. It's competent. It's just boring. <laughs> yeah, and I just did not think that you could put boring in the same sentence with David Tennant, unless what you or, were doing was contradicting something. The nicer know. way to say it is that it's very calm. It's a very <laughs> calm documentary, right? It has a lot of pretty pictures of Ireland, a lot of pictures, a lot of St. Patrick's old words, uh, own words, a couple of gray-haired, you know, scholars with their hair flying everywhere who you need the, the subtitles to understand. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if one is not cranky, it's probably charming. Ah, oh, and were you cranky when you were watching this? Well, I was getting increasingly cranky trying to figure out if it was David Tennant who directed it. <laughs> <laughs> one of Scotland's greatest actors directing this thing. <laughs> As a very young person. Yeah, I'm not it's funny because you know it's not it's 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 not easy to find, quite frankly. Well, you want to know about the bad ones? Yes, please to tell me. Let's let's get off the we'll we'll go off the David Tennant uh <laughs> hamster wheel. Oh, tell me about the bad St. Patrick's movies because I might want to find them. Okay. There's there's a, rel a reasonably competent documentary from 2016. So, so there's a 20 year period in there where Patrick is hot from 2000 to 2020, because there's a bunch of stuff coming out. Why? So yeah, Why? I have no idea. Um, that one's actually all on YouTube. I'll put a link in it, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. There's a movie that was just released last year called I am Patrick from the Christian broadcasting network um, that they managed to get, John Reese Davies to star as old Patrick in it. He's, he's played by three different um, actors in that film that him young being kidnapped. And then as a middle-aged man, when he comes back and is evangelizing Ireland and then as an old man, when he is 
kind of looking back on things. And that's who John Reese davies plays. Anyway, it looks like a perfectly competent movie. I watched the trailer. I watched some of the behind the scenes things. I cannot bring myself to pay money to for this because I would have had to have spent like eight bucks to rent it and I didn't want to. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. It looks competent. Most of that's what the reviews say is that it's, it's a perfectly competent, perfect, perfectly competent, if not riveting sort of, sort of film. So if you want a truly horrifically terrible St. Patrick's movie, the one you have to go watch as much as you can stand, I made it through three and a half minutes. Oh, really? Oh God. You've got it's, a strong stomach for this kind of crap, huh? Oh, Lord. So it's called St. Patrick, the Irish Legend. It came out in the year 2000. It's a made-for-TV movie starring some big names, actually. Patrick Bergen, who I loved as Robin Hood. I mean, he was he's my favorite Robin Hood. So I had, I had some hope for this, even though it was made for television. And um, Malcolm McDowell. No, very good was also a good actor so so here's what happened okay so at the right at the beginning of the film the druids no 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 druids are going to sacrifice this young woman to their you know pagan gods Uh, uh, and saint patrick uh, shows up and he like saint patrick is played by um patrick bergen he like raises his staff and horrific CGI purple lightning comes down from the sky and strikes the head druid who is going to do the human sacrifice. And then Patrick comes over and he's got a hammer and he like, they move the young woman first. He smashes the altar and it splinters with more bad CGI lightning effects. And then I was done. Um, In the year 2000, bad CGI effects were not necessary. Mm. Also, the druids know. Just stop. Oh my god! So we don't know what happens after that, except that we're expecting more CGI stuff. I'm pretty sure that if one were to watch it, it would make the one that came out last year look amazing, as opposed to as opposed to merely competent. Uh, because and actually I, I think this is a true thing the one the one that came out last year is very much focusing on patrick and his spiritual experience his conversion experience like as opposed to saint patrick who's like coming in to kick druid ass which appears to right. be what the other one is doing pa- saint patrick beowulfian superhero i don't i'm not saying i actually recommend any of these i'm just saying that this is what i found well, you know, when St. Patrick talks actually about his own life, there are, except for like, you know, miracle pigs showing up and whatnot, this, it's not about superhero. It's about I went here and I went there and I, you know, told people stuff. It's, uh, that's it. There's no CGI effects with druids. I was, as I as I told you, flabbergasted to find the film, the, the, the I Am Patrick one made by the Christian Broadcasting Network because uh, my experience spending six traumatizing years as a church librarian in an evangelical oh i um, remember this establishment, yeah i remember this piece of your life um, was very traumatizing because everybody hated the middle ages all the time like anything that was medieval and or catholic 
was was strictly not actually Christian. So coming across a film about Patrick by um, this particular group really, 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 really surprised me. I mean, say, uh, C.S. Lewis was still controversial among the evangelicals when I was when I was there, um, which was weird. Well, he was pretty high Anglican. So this film, I think, um, is is an interesting indication of something. But again, um, I wasn't paying money to watch it. Sorry. Other there, there. I did find. It was on Netflix for a little while, so I thought maybe I'm gonna get to watch it and not have to spend money. But it was off of Netflix by the time I was looking. Oh, too bad. Too bad. Too I would have. Yeah. I would have at least scrolled through it. Um, but it does look very competent. the The trailers look competent. Ireland looks pretty. They have drone pictures. That is very interesting. Like what? What is their interest in St. Patrick? Yeah what would be one of the things that would be nice about watching it would be to find out kind of what the take is on Mm -hmm. St. Patrick and what it is he has to say to evangelical Christians today. Yeah. It'd be nice to know. Well, I found some interesting films. (laughs) That's what I did. I read a biography and I, I found some films. (laughs) The the more I read about Norman Witten, it was like, I just got to keep reading about this guy because he is wild. I want to read a biography of Norman Witten. So somebody better go write this guy. Write this guy a biography. Yeah, I want to. I want to see his stuff. I want to know about him. Yeah. So that's my favorite thing so far. So yeah, this is a deal about St. Patrick. He really was there. He really did convert people, and he really did write some stuff about that. But what becomes of him is something very different from other than the converting people part something very different from what he was he he gets used it's like Joan of Arc he gets used yeah uh Joan is an interesting comparison because this is one of these figures who comes down from the middle ages that people have heard of and probably know about like 10% fact yeah i mean he was uh he was very brave he was very spiritual he was strongly religious minded and he did what he thought was right uh there's no smiting druids with um fire from god that didn't happen uh snakes no and of course he's he's important historically because we don't have a whole lot of sources from this time period that are from this time period yeah, we have things later that purport to be about this time period, but not things that are actually fifth century written in the fifth century that we know for sure existed then. Mm. And it's a really vexed time, you know, with Roman Britain falling all apart and uh, the relations between the Irish and the and Britain and the Scots in Britain and the Welsh in Britain uh, and the Welsh and Irish and the Welsh and Scots and the Scots and Irish all, all of those very fraught and Patrick's kind of in the middle of all that traveling all around so yeah so happy St. Patrick's Day he was there uh, he committed a horrible crime we don't know what it was then horrible crimes were committed on him we do know what they were and he and they were part of the fabric of hiberno roman life and we have his writing happy saint patrick's day i think he must have been a very charismatic figure yes i think so uh, to have survived all of those things that he did i think so 
I would love to know, though, what did he do at 15 years old? We'll never that know. That he felt so bad about, I know. Yeah, I mean, there were there were trials and witnesses, yeah, and he, afterwards, yeah. What was it? But we don't know. For him, the details of what he had done were not the issue. That he had done something and that he repented it and that he served his penance by walking amongst the Irish for the rest of his life, uh, that's really the point. But for us, we're true crime medieval, so we wanted to know what the crime was, but we don't know. All we know is about Irish raiders. (laughs) St. Patrick, he behaved very badly, and then he was good. So our next one is um, the murder of William Rufus. (gasps) Billy Rufus! Totally killed by accident. (laughs) Totally killed by accident. And nothing was nefarious about this. Yeah, so the next time we see you, we'll be discussing the death of um, King William II from England, whom everybody always calls William Rufus, except for me, I call him Billy Rufus. I have since I was an undergraduate. I don't know why. I just do Billy Rufus. Got to talk about Billy Rufus. He got, he got, he totally got assassinated on a hunting trip, but theoretically it's an accident. So we'll talk about Billy. It was an accident. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, which never got investigated. Right. I shot the king dead, but nobody cared. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, Billy Rufus. So that's what we will be doing the next time we see you. This has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. We're on Apple Podcast, iHeart Cod Pod- podcast spotify stitcher any place where the podcasts are going on we seem to be there Uh, please leave a review on apple we'd really appreciate that Uh, you can reach us at truecrimemedieval.com true crime medieval is all one word and you can find the show notes which are written by michelle the transcripts which are done for us by Lori dietrich and you can also reach us all through the webpage and you can leave comments we would love to hear from you and if you have medieval crimes we should discuss please let us know and if you have things to say about explaining some stuff we didn't know tell us because then we'll tell we'll as we did with Michelle's brother-in-law, we will say that. Yeah, please let us know. And so that's us signing off. Happy St. Patrick's Day and bye. Bye. Bye.